This is Standing Before the Mast podcast with your host, Chris Heaton. Kim Cavan began her journalism career at a newspaper nearly 25 years ago. While many local newspapers have either been bought out, consolidated, or shut down, Kim Cavan made a move to yachting journalism before many of those changes began to proliferate. Her initial move to yachting was, well, to Yachting Magazine. Kim walks us through those early days, explaining how she wound up at yachting and the many other publications with which she's played a major role. Those other publications include Soundings, Passage Maker, Cruising World, Soundings Trade Only, Yachts International, and Boat Setter. Part of that discussion includes how she successfully navigated a world occupied predominantly by men. Kim introduces me to the practice of enthusiast-oriented journalism. Unlike in the world of Woodward and Bernstein, the approach to covering a story about a yacht or charter is a different yet valued pursuit. There exists a delicate dance between the yachting businesses and the journalists that cover them. She also walks us through some of the structural changes that have taken place at magazines and how she now works as a freelance journalist and writer. Beyond Kim's work in the world of yachting journalism, she also has a love and passion for dogs that runs deep. That passion runs so deep, her curiosity about the history of her adopted dog led her on a personal journey to discover the origin of her beloved pet. This was documented in her book, Little Boy Blue, released in 2012. CNN did a story on the book that ultimately resulted in a kill shelter being closed down. Most of our talk is about boats, yachts, the behind the scenes of yachting journalism, but the last 10 minutes or so are about our mutual love of dogs and her work in that field. You can learn more about Kim, her writing history, accolades, and links to her writings and advocacy for freelancers at her website, KimCavin.com. That's K-I-M-K-A-V-I-N.com. And the next time you pick up a copy of Yachting, be sure to look for her name and you'll be able to put a voice to the words. Here's my talk with Kim. I hope you enjoy. Well, thanks for doing this with me. It's a pleasure to meet you. Thanks for inviting me. I actually stumbled across you because somebody left a stack of Yachting magazines in our store. And I'm just kind of flipping through and a lot of it didn't register with me because it was way above my pay scale. But my eyes landed on a picture of the 1920s catch talisman. And so I, I read your, your article about the repowering and that, that kind of got me interested. And then I, I noticed that you wrote several articles in that magazine. Yachting and I have a long relationship. I think it goes back more than 20 years now. Yeah, it's a long time I've, wow. I've been with them. You don't just write for yachting, or at least according to your, your website. And correct me if I'm wrong, because yachting, soundings, passage maker, cruising world, Soundings Trade Only, Yachts International, and one I'm not familiar with, Boat Setter. Yeah. Um, not, and occasionally groups like the International Yacht Brokers Association, they, their magazine, uh, various other mm. marine magazines. I, I used to be the executive editor at Yachting uh, from 2000 to 2003. And what I learned was I really, really enjoy writing and editing. And I really, really hate being a manager sitting under fluorescent <laughs> lights dealing with 
management stuff. And so I chose to just quit my job. I had like half the world's dream job as executive editor at Yachting Magazine. And I just quit. And I decided to go freelance and hang out a shingle and say, I'm available for writing and editing. And it turned out to be the greatest move I ever made because not only can I do it within the marine industry, I also can do it outside the marine industry if I have other interests. And today I do freelance writing and editing. Most most of the day is taken up with all those different magazines you named and a couple others. Wow. This also struck me because I followed some rabbit holes on your website about freelancing and I didn't realize, or maybe it's you could clarify it, I assume that when I see a masthead in a magazine, that all the names I see are employees of that publication or their parent company. But that's not the case with you, at least. Is that the case with a lot of people? No, it's not the case with a lot. If you're looking at a, a masthead and you see something like a correspondent or an editor at large, sometimes a copy editor, a consulting editor, a lot of times those are going to be freelance people. Back when I was the executive editor at Yachting, we had something like, I'd have to count, something like nine or 10 or 12 people on staff in a building making the magazine. And then there were a handful of freelancers kind of rotating in the orbit. Now at all the magazines, it's completely upside down from that. You have maybe two or three people on staff at some, some of these magazines have one left on staff and then maybe like an art director that they share with three other magazines or something like that. And they have a a big circle of freelancers rotating around the business model got kind of flipped on its head in the past 20 years. So when, when you see a masthead like that, no, you're not seeing a list of employees. You're seeing a combined list of employees and freelancers. Right. And I noticed like someone like Herb McCormick, cause he, he'll write for cruising world or, one of the other ones that fall under the umbrella. Yeah. Like Herb, um, I think he was on staff until about a year ago, I want to say. And then he went freelance. And so now you'll sometimes see him do a column in yachting in addition to cruising world. And, and he gets to, I assume do what I did 20 years ago, which is get rid of some of the awfulness of the staff editing stuff and focus more on writing what he wants to write, which is good because Herb McCormick's a fantastic writer. So the more places we can see his voice, the happier I am. I can tell you that. Now, did you start with newspapers or did you aim to go right into sort of magazine journalism? I started at newspapers. I, it's kind of a funny story. I was a daily newspaper editor. I went to the University of Missouri School of Journalism, go Tigers. You know, I'm the, I'm the kid who won the spelling bee at school and became the editor in chief of the high school paper, all that kind of nerd stuff. Sure. And went into journalism and I had a bad day at the paper. I was working in New York at a newspaper and there was a shooting at a mall and uh, a little kid who was holding his mom's hand, they were walking into a department store. He got hit by the shrapnel. It was a gang shooting and the kid got hit by the shrapnel. He lived, but it was my job to call the mom and get the quote. And oh my when, God. it was a bad day. And when I called her, she didn't speak very much English and she thought I was from the government. And I guess she was maybe an illegal immigrant. I don't know. She didn't, you know, she spoke mostly Spanish and she started screaming that we were going to take her child away and she didn't want to talk to us. And I just kind of hung up the phone and said, you know, I'm so sorry for your troubles. Good luck. Well, they almost fired me because your job was to get the quote, Kim, and you didn't get the quote. And 
it became a whole thing where I kind of went home and I was in my late 20s at the time. And I thought, well, my life is over. I'll never be a real journalist. This is horrible. And I had, I happened to have a copy of a magazine, doesn't exist anymore, but it was called Editor and Publisher. And in the back, they had classified ads for like help wanted ads for journalism jobs. And there was one in the back. It wasn't too far away. It was in Greenwich, Connecticut, and it was for an outdoor magazine editor. And my entire thought process was, I'd rather be outdoors than under a police scanner calling people about things like this. So I dial up the phone and this is what's on the other end. Hello, Yachting Magazine. And I make this noise into the phone like, yeah, right. (laughs) That's going to happen to me. You know, what if it had said yachting, I would never would have called. I would have thought I wasn't remotely qualified. That was a guy named Kenny Wooten. At the time, he was editor-in-chief of Yachting Magazine. He's a very well-known name in the business, and I still work with him today. And um, he had a staff full of guys who could tell you anything you wanted to know about a boat. They had done work in naval architecture, marine sales, boat design, boat marketing, boat building. They were captains. They could tell you anything you wanted to know about a boat. Try to get the magazine out on time, spell check something, write a headline that fit. Very challenging for these guys that couldn't right. do it. So he, Kenny hired me as his number two, which was a fascinating dynamic when you bring in a woman, first of all, in a very male-dominated culture, a woman who's really tough at writing and editing and has been trained hard in it for over a decade mm. with a bunch of people who've never been trained in it, but they are experts at the boats and they're twice my age and kind of resent my being there. Oh, <laughs> and so oh, we all had to kind of learn how to get along. And um, Kenny came up with this plan. I don't think you could get away with saying it today, but he said, we're going to put you on the girly beat. And I kind of got indignant. I'm like, well, what's the girl? You know, what's the girly beat? It turned out there was this whole segment called Charter where you rent a boat. Uh, in Yachting's case, it's with a crew and you go for a week for whatever, $100,000, $200,000 and up. And he said, when I send the guys on these stories, they're miserable because they're not allowed to drive the boats and they have to hang out with all these women charter brokers. So I want you to go to like Fiji for a couple days on a boat and write a story. And while you're there, learn about the boats. And I'm like, well, the girly beat doesn't sound too bad. Okay, <laughs> let's do that. Sign me so up. That was how I learned about the big boats. I, I had grown up. Uh, my grandfather had a house on a lake. So I'd been on little boats, like little ski boats and things like that. But never anything like yachting magazine would cover. And so that was how I learned about the yachts was they would send me off to Greece or Grenada or wherever, wherever we were doing a story on a charter boat. And I would spend extra time in the engine room or up at the helm with the captain and just learn how, you know, what's a, what's a chart plotter? What's a VHF radio? How does, how do you change a a fuel filter in in a diesel? How do you do all that? And the other women are kind of up on deck drinking white wine and doing whatever they're doing. And I was down getting greasy in the, in the engine rooms. Nice. Now, was this sort of like an offshoot to a brokerage show where they, they exposed themselves to the media for, for press or something, or, or was this, was there an actual charter taking place? Um, they're called fam trips, which is short for familiarization. There's actual charter yacht shows, just like there's boat shows that are open to the public. Yeah. There's charter boat shows that are closed to the public. They're only open to charter brokers and invited press. Usually Mm -hmm. they're trying to make sure it's not just random people getting on these. We're talking, you know, 150, 250 foot super yachts. And 
So like there would be, they're kind of sometimes back to back. There would be months where I would be sent off to the Genoa charter boat show in Italy. And from there, I would fly to Poros in Greece and go to the charter boat show in Greece. And from there, I would fly to Marmaris in Turkey and go to the charter boat show in Turkey. And maybe on either end of those, I'd spend two or three days on a boat that was involved in one of those shows along with a bunch of different charter brokers who were had flown in for the same reason. And then we could write, I don't know, I'd probably get 15 stories out of a trip like that. But it wasn't easy. You know, that's, I'm a little older now. And uh, to do that in your 30s and 40s is one thing. And I think to try to do it after you turn 50, your back starts to hurt on those planes. It's it's a lot of traveling (laughs) to get to those places, but it's a great deal of fun. And you get to see how all different kinds of boats are used all around the world. And it's all really, really different. It's a fantastic education. Wow. Yeah. You, you mentioned being a woman entering that, that world. One of the earlier interviews I did was she was actually my landlord at one point here in Newport was uh, Barbara Lloyd. I don't know if you've heard of her. She used to write for the New York times. Um, Actually she started at the Newport daily news and by leaving the Daily News, she actually made an opening for who's now a friend of ours, a guy named Jim Gillis, to get there. And he became a columnist. But Barbara wound up at the New York Times, and she covered sailing and yachting for them. And she has a, a beautiful quote in her book, which we talked about in our podcast, where she says she leaned into a man's world, which I thought was interesting. And she didn't – we talked about it, as I recall. I don't think she meant it in the sense of uh, I'm going to take over – like a man's career in journalism, it was more like I got to play in this world of yachts and that's predominantly men. And and that's kind of what she was, what she was referring to. She's right. It's, there are many, many pictures of me throughout the years. And even today, when I get on a zoom call, I'm often the only woman there whether it's in a photo from 20 years ago or on a Zoom call today. Sorry, I should have brought my wife in here. (laughs) We were doing test calls earlier. I could have had her pop up and then we could, you know, throw the balance back. (laughs) Right, right. There's a funny story. Um, One of my friends, another really great longtime writer in Marine that your listeners might have heard of, his name is Lenny Rudeau. He he writes a lot about fishing and Mm. just a really great writer, really funny writer, really good guy. Um, But he came once to New York to a conference of the American Society of Journalists and Authors, which I'm a member of, and it's a huge freelance writing organization. When you look at the job category of freelance writers, it's a lot of women. It's it's women because, A, they hit a glass ceiling and can't get promoted up to editor-in-chief, or maybe they have kids that they need to take care of, so they'd rather freelance and control their time. For whatever reason, you go to this conference every every year, it's 80, 90% women walking around. And Lenny came up to me, we had lunch at the conference and he said, well, now I know how you feel at every single boat show you've ever attended because I'm the only guy in this room and you're always the only woman. And it had never occurred to him how that felt. But yeah, for for a lot of anything, you go to press conferences, you go to yard tours, you try to deal with marketing people, it's almost always men. It's a little better today than it was in the past. Mm -hmm. And we have some really great female editors in chief. I saw you'd had um, Wendy Mittman Clark on your show. Fantastic writer. She's an editor in chief now at Sale. It's changed for sure, but it is not 50-50. I don't know if it'll ever be 50-50. We'll see. All these initiatives to build boats that are easier to use where... 
there's a lower barrier to entry, this, that, and the other thing. They say it'll attract more women. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. But a lot of times it's really just me in the room. They did a a thing, and I think I know the the guy involved, but at the Newport Boat Show a few years ago, I don't know if they did it last year, where they called it Women on the Water. And it was, I think they had a center console or something, and you went aboard with a male captain. (laughs) And it was to help women feel more comfortable and if I'm thinking if it's the same guy, my wife took a, I had my wife take a course cause she doesn't never been on a boat until she met me. And I wanted her to feel a little more safe. And it was more about just what's going on on the water. It was a classroom thing, but they had this on the water program at the boat show you could sign up for. And I think that that was the idea to, even if you're not going to run the boat yourself, at least get comfortable with the operation. So you feel more at ease. It's funny how those programs have evolved like today, West Marine is partnering with the Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation to do in-store programs led by women anglers for women anglers. You know, it's all very specific. 20 years ago, when I was writing stories about this stuff, the first one I remember writing about was called Suddenly Alone. The The cruising club had come up with this great idea for a program what happens if the man who knows everything on the boat has a heart attack and the woman has to get the boat in? What if she's suddenly alone? That's not a bad thought, but if you if you kind of broaden out and think a little bit, the entire attitude was the man is always the skipper on the boat and right. the woman is always the man. But that was okay. It, women started to take the program and feel a little, and then they had to fight with their husbands for home time. But that's a whole other saga. Then we started to have like, um, sea sense came around. I went, I went down to, um, Southwest Florida yachts and did a story on them where they were women captains teaching women's live aboard classes on boats, like a 42 foot grand banks type of a boat. And so the women not only were learning from other women, but they didn't have to, to feel strange about the fact that, they maybe didn't know anything. It was expected that their husbands had never let them get on, get behind the wheel. And, do, and so the, the the female captains are like, here's how you do this. Maybe your husband's doing it wrong. Let me show you how this is supposed to be right. done. And so that evolved. And, you know, today we have what we talked about earlier, where there there is a very big push right now to get more women onto boats and behind the helm and feeling comfortable behind boats. I, but I can remember... I don't know, 20 years ago, bringing a 42 foot Grand Banks into a dock somewhere. There were men on that dock with their jaws just hanging open. Like, look at that little girl driving that boat. How is she doing? You know, and you just, right. it's like we're docking the boat. You know, you just, yeah. it's, it's not a skill that requires a certain set of, you know, whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah. You can do this, you know, but it was just very unusual to see back then. And now I'm happy to say it's not as unusual. It is funny how some of these attitudes, prevail. I have a customer who's, she's retired, semi-retired now because she timed out. She's an airline pilot, was an airline pilot. And she flew 747 for most of her career. And then she retrained on the Airbus A350. And now she trains other pilots uh, in the simulator. But she would sometimes come back from a trip and, and she went to the Far East. She would come back from a trip. She'd pop into the, our shop to pick something up for her boat that she kept nearby in, in the harbor. And she might be in her uniform or something. And you say that woman's a an airline pilot. I go, yeah, and she just came back from Korea. <laughs> you know, it's and they're like, surprised, right? Yeah, they are. They're they're surprised, but um, but she 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 trains people now, you know, because she timed out age wise. 
I get it even in emails, especially from overseas. My name is Kim Cavan. I often get Dear Mr. Kevin and then whatever they want us to write about. Um, people often think my name is Kevin. I don't know why. It's it's just the way that it is. You've been at this for a while. What are some of the most notable changes you've seen? We talked a bit about the more women getting involved, but just from the way I would say print, I guess what I'm leading to is print versus digital. and. Uh, the, what killed a lot of the newspapers in this country was the classified ads went away or other advertising revenue streams. So, you know, they just keep reducing the paper size. And I'm just wondering what you see the future. People really seem to be still, or in your industry, try to hold on to the physical aspect of it. But I don't see a real legitimate, you know, digital version of of anything. I mean, you they take digital content that appears in the print, but I'm just wondering what you think the future might be. You know, as a it's really interesting with Marine. Yes, we all have to do digital and we all had to do it when, you know, Facebook came around. We had to figure that out. And now we all have to write the SEO friendly for the search engine. So Google right. can find it. That's my least favorite. If chat GPT wants to write anything, I hope it's the <laughs> SEO friendly. Let, let chat GPT talk to Google and leave me out of it. I'm all for that. But the print is interesting because... At least at a lot of the magazines where I'm a reg regular freelance contributor, they're still doing just fine in print. And I think what it boils down to is when you're sitting on a boat or at a marina in the sun and you want to read something, ah. it's really hard to read those digital screens in the sun with the glare off the water and off the boats. But you can still pick up a magazine and read it and enjoy it. And People are looking for that. They're looking to get away from their devices. They're looking to to get offshore and where nobody can find them for a little while and relax. And they bring books and printed magazines. And so in that's my gut feeling is that it's mm. just we have a little bit of advantage because of our subject matter. They also look good lying on a teak table. With <laughs> <laughs> they know? really, really do. And, and some of them have gotten really gorgeous. Like yachting is an example of that. They've got a really interesting paper stock with really vibrant colors now on the cover. You've got the magazines like Yachts International with the oversized covers now that just right. look so glamorous and gorgeous. They're almost like coffee table books. They're, they're just stunning. I think I read somewhere that it, there was one year where a lot of magazine subscriptions were declining in, in general, not just boating, but for whatever reason, wooden boat, it show, just showed this trend going up. And well, and not only that, like you have, like I do a lot of work with Passage Maker and even Cruising World is similar in this way a little bit where there's a lot of people who read those types of magazines that are do-it-yourselfers out on the boats. They love to do it yourself. They don't want to pay a yard to do anything. Mm. They want to have that magazine with the step-by-step -step instructions for whatever it is they're trying to do. And they lay it out and they do whatever they're trying to do on the boat. And they like having that physical magazine there. And then they keep it almost like a reference guide on their boat forever in case they need it again. I'm sure there will be a digital way to do all that in the future. But mm. today, if you're a guy who likes to just get dirty hanging out in the bilge, that's still often the best way to do it. Yeah. Usually my wife's from England, so I haven't been back in a while, but when I do go back with her, I often pick up, there's a magazine called Practical Boat Owner. Great magazine. Yeah. yeah. And if you, you flip through it, you're talking about projects you flip through it, there'll be little drawings like you would see in maybe Nigel Calder's book or something, you know, <laughs> a little way to do something. And I thought, wow, there's, 
there's some really good content in here, which you get around here, but that, that was a, it was really rich in content I found. Yeah. I, I mean, you can go on YouTube today and find people showing you how to do things. That's helpful too. I even right. use that around the house if I'm trying to figure <laughs> out how to fix something. If you can get a guy like Nigel Calder explaining to you step by step across three or four pages how to do something on a boat, it's going to be so much more helpful to you in life than any right. two minute video you're ever going to watch. Right. He, he has forgotten more about how to fix things than most of us will ever learn. And he can explain very clearly, which a lot of writers can't do. He's great at it. He can explain mm. if this happens, it's because of this. Right. Instead, if this happens, it's because of this. And P.S. If this happens, it's you know that you're not going to usually get from a from a quickie video. Yeah, I've got a copy of his masterpiece there, the boat owner's electric uh, mechanical and electrical guide in in my house, and I've got one at work. And occasionally, I've pulled it out at work when I couldn't fathom a, a technical question. And then a customer will pull out their phone and say, can I just take a picture of that page? I'll close the book. I'll say, I'll tell you what, you go to International <laughs> Marine Press <laughs> and or Amazon, whatever. I don't like to refer to Amazon, but, you know, go to International Marine Press and order one. And, oh, it's $35 or whatever. I said, just buy it. Just you know. It's worth the $35. You will have it forever and it will help you do everything you ever want to know. And And it's. It's one of the greatest brains in the business. He's fantastic. You mentioned YouTube. One of the things that comes up occasionally when I chat with people is uh, social media influencers and their popularity. And I did an interview a a while ago. He's a classmate of mine. He went to the Naval Academy. And after a career in the Navy, he he almost went into the the corporate world. But he just kind of said, nope, we're going. He went to Iris. And then he said he bought a catamaran. And his family went off on this year-long trip. At one point, I think he had a funny quote. He said, I don't want to be a guy on my couch watching YouTube videos. I want to go do it. And so that, that you know, we did the Iris program. He became very, very knowledgeable on top of what he already knew. But I just thought that was interesting. A lot of people love to watch the channels, maybe voyeuristically, but he he wanted to, he watched enough of it to say, I want to go do it. You know? And now there's people paying for their cruising lifestyle by making those channels. We we did a story on them. Where did I write that one for? I think it ran in Passage Maker. Uh, we inter- who did I talk to? I think we interviewed three different couples who had they had their own podcasts, they had their own YouTube channels, they had their own ways to donate. Uh, all of it was branded. Whatever they had branded their cruising family. And it's just a couple with usually like a kid or two on the Mm -hmm. boat. And they're trying to figure out how to be live aboard boaters. Some of them were making enough money to sustain the cruising lifestyle. Now they weren't eating out at the marina and docking every night. You know, they're on a mooring, cooking up hot dogs or catching their own fish, whatever they're doing, but they could do it. They could do it by producing that kind of online video content that people loved. And it's like watching a reality show. And a lot of them are just doing it with an iPhone and an editing program. They're, they're great at it. And, and like you said, people love and love to watch it. And there is a whole group out there that's turning it into a business. And I say, good for them. Hmm. Let the young 25 year old moms in the bikinis go do that. Good for them. They can, (laughs) they can enjoy. Yeah. At the Newport boat show uh, this past September, Mm -hmm. I think it was a first for them. They had, in fact, I chatted with the, the woman that run the boat show for a podcast. And they alerted me to this. They had this booth for, for social media influencers and they had a handful of them. I think some of them came from as far as the Midwest and they would have a, a slot where they would speak and people could go up to them. And 
I guess maybe they didn't realize how popular it was going to be, but the spot they gave him was sort of in a narrow row with not much of a, a walkway and then water, you know, you know, right at the edge of the docks and it got crowded. It, they, they, they had a few people there that drew a big crowd. Because they have fans just like, right. Whatever the real desperate housewives of whatever the new <laughs> one is like, these people have fans of their channels and of their brand. And they're just people. They're just people with an iPhone and some editing software right. who have figured out how to make what they're doing look interesting. And Good for them. I think it's fantastic. Have you ever had a lot of um, encountered a lot of gatekeepers or barriers when you're trying to get a story, or are people pretty cooperative? That's In a other good words, question. I guess if a if a company or a, a yacht they have a product, instead of talking to the person, do they give you like a PR person or a, a press release as opposed to what's the old saying? Bring me the organ grinder, not the monkey. Right. It's an interesting <laughs> question. Usually, if you're calling on behalf of an established magazine, mm. you can get whoever you need on the phone. I will say sometimes when I'm dealing with men, even today, they will often say out loud, just in the middle of the call or whatever we're doing, if it's an in-person interview, they'll say, wow, you really did your homework. I'm surprised at how thorough these questions are. And I'm thinking... This is basic how everybody does. But I assume that's because of gender. Maybe I'm making a bad assumption. I don't know. I've also had instances where I'm on boats. And when you get with an old grizzled captain, they don't Mm. generally want a lot to do with you, especially if you're a younger woman. They they think you're not worth their time. So sometimes you end up with the chief stewardess showing you around and telling you how beautiful the pillows are or something instead when you're trying to write a story about the new radar system at the helm. So that has happened to me. But I would say it's happening less and less. And Mm. certainly with the big companies and when you're dealing you know, you're tr- when you're representing yourself as dealing with the big magazines, it's not very often anymore. And it's so it's not a problem now that you're if you're freelance, they don't. Yeah, I usually just say I'm a I'm a freelance writer working on a story for whoever. And and honestly, it's not that big of a universe, the marine universe. And right. I've been in it yeah. for 20 years now. So, you know, if I'm calling whoever the marketing guy for Boat US, he knows which 10 magazines I'm affiliated with mm-hmm. and that I'm a real person. And it's it's not a question. It was funny because because I sat with the, the woman from the boat show, they did they were they just gave me a, a press credential in and you know I've been I've been in a lot of boat shows as an exhibitor and they said, oh come to the show and walk around. And I'm glad they did because it, it I was able to get a podcast out of it with this Brazilian family. And so I, I forgot I was wearing the laminate. Whenever I've worn a laminate at a boat show before, it's had my company name on it, me, and I've been representing a, a boat or something like that. And I forgot that I was wearing it and it said press. And I w- walked up to one product and this guy appeared out of nowhere and really engaged me more so than I think a salesman would and gave me his card. And I just put it in my pocket, walked away. And I looked at it later and it was a PR firm. He had nothing to do with the company. Uh, Interesting. That, yeah. And I'd never seen anything like that. To be fair. So he was pitching you. He was trying to pitch you on a story. He, he Well, he didn't really pitch me. He engaged me very, he was very good. He said, can I answer any questions? Um, we're a new company. And he, he was talking like he was the company. But after I looked at his card, I realized, you know, he was part of a PR firm. And um, I wanted to speak to the owner because, or, or the, the founder of the company, because I thought he was most interesting. 
so then after the show, I emailed and I, and I tried to get through and it, it got routed through the PR guy again. And I said, well, I'm not getting anywhere here. I, I let it slide for now. <laughs> but that's the difference between, you know, someone like me who's just an amateur guy with a podcast and, and a professional. I think if you're dealing with a really big company, like a big corporation, like Brunswick Corporation or something like that, you're almost always going to route through a PR person. That's mm. just the way it's done. But if you're talking about, you know, there's a lot of little mom and pop companies in the marine industry. And you can very often just call and ask to talk to the person at the top and schedule mm. an interview and they'll do it. I don't know if that's necessarily a function of working for a podcast or a magazine or whatever. I think sometimes it's just a function of how the how the company is set up and, and right. what you're trying to do. What do you see as missing from the world of boating, yachting, journalism right now, if anything? Oh, that's a good question. Wow. I mean... Marine journalism is was after the second glass of wine. I wrote that. (laughs) (laughs) A man after my own heart. I love it. (laughs) I think marine journalism, it's a little different than other kinds of journalism. You know, I also do, I do a lot of writing for magazines like Entrepreneur. I, I do, my byline appears fairly regularly in the Washington Post. It's a whole different type of thing you're doing in marine where, I think of it as enthusiast journalism, where you're never going to open a boating magazine and see a review of a new boat that says, this is the ugliest, worst, most horrible thing anybody has ever built. And let me tell you all the ways it's unsafe and atrocious and should not even be on the market. That will never, ever, ever happen where it would happen in in a newspaper. It's never going to happen in, in Marine. In Marine, the thing that I would like to see more of as a, you know, from my perspective, what I do all day is the copy comes to me from all these different magazines and I'm editing it. So I'm seeing everything that's getting submitted by all these different writers to all these different magazines. There's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of unoriginal approaches to storytelling. And what I would like to see is something that I first heard as a student years ago from a guy named Rick Riley, who used to write the back page of Sports Illustrated. Fantastic writer. He came and talked to our class and he said, if, if I leave you with only one thing, it is this. Never write a sentence you've already read. Wow. What a great line, right? Yeah, Never great. write a sentence you've already read. I can't tell you, Chris, how many stories come across my desk that say, the stateroom is flooded with light from the port side oversized window. And, you know, you've read this story 10,000 times. There's been no attempt to make it original in the way it's being written. There's been no attempt to maybe pick up the phone and call somebody, get some quotes that, that aren't in a handout that some boat builder gave you to write about their boat. What I always, always would like to see it's just a little more effort on the originality because I think that is where we could really, it's low hanging fruit where we could all improve at writing these kinds of stories. And mm-hmm. yes, I understand it's boats. Yes, I understand it's enthusiast oriented. You know, you're, you're a little bit limited in that, but there's still a million ways to write a sentence and just try to think a little outside the box. That's kind of what I would like to see. Do you think that's getting either changed or squashed by an editor or that's just everyone's in that sort of rut or pan. I wouldn't say rut, but they're in. No, I, I, 
I am the editor and we're not swashing it. We're begging for it. <laughs> we want it. it it's coming uh, to you that way, right? Okay. It's coming in that way. I, I, I think what's happening is the same thing that I saw when I started 20, almost 25 years ago at Yachting as a staffer, which is we have a lot of people who are experts at boats who are writing the content. And there's nothing wrong with that. You want that expertise in all the magazines. They're great what those guys bring to the table. But they're never, ever going to be the best writer on planet Earth. It's not their thing. It's not what their focus is. And so any any way that we can teach subject matter experts, experts on everything from helm electronics to anchoring to you know, fiberglass construction, whatever it is, anything we can do to teach these folks how to be better writers. I am all for that. And I think readers would really be all for it too. Yeah. I read a review once and it was a boat that I kind of walked around at the boat show and it was very, where there was any criticism, it was very soft kid glovey. It was sort of like uh, they positioned the traveler here. We would have let maybe had it a little further forward, but it works, you know, it, it, we're happy with it. And the boat sailed fine and, and all this other stuff. But I heard one, and I guess it's a, it's a salesman strategy, but there was a couple at, at the Newport show and they looked at one f- European brand of boat and then looked over at the other European brand of boat and said, what's the difference between these two boats? And the salesman said, think of us as Mercedes Benz and think of them as Ford or Chevy. <laughs> and I thought, Oh, well, and to be fair, the, the couple who were asking the question, they were just sort of at the boat show because it was something to do on, on a Sunday. But when he said that answer, I thought that's not going to fly if those people knew what they were talking about. Right. There, there needs to be a follow-up question or two. Right. Yeah. But the boat he was on, I wasn't impressed with the positioning of the compass. It was a dual helm stations for a sailboat and I had the nice uh, cockpit table in the center. There was no compass on either of the helms and there was nothing on the bulkhead. It was down at the base of the table. So to get a compass bearing, you'd have to get, I'd have to get down on my hands and knees. And and at that point you can't, I don't know, it's just odd placement. But I, I believe the way I talked to another person in the, in the industry and they said, well, the way things are going, it, it's all going to be glass cock, you know, glass navigation screens. So think of that as like the compass on an aircraft, you know, it's there, nobody uses it, but it, it it's there. So. so what would have happened in hard hitting journalism world with something like that would have been, you would have gone to the boat builder and said, why did you put it here? Mm-hmm. And they would have said something silly, like think of us as Mercedes and think of them as Ford. Right. And you would have then said, I'm not kidding. How are people supposed to read this compass? I don't, can you show me how people are supposed to, and they would not know how to do it and they would not have a good answer. And you would then run whatever their bad answer was. Mm. And the reader would be able to see, hey, there's a problem with the positioning of the compass. You wouldn't have to say the words, there's a problem. The reader would just get it by the time you're done. What happens in marine world is if anybody even bothers to bring it up and go back to that boat builder and say, hey, what's going on with this compass? The boat builder says, I advertise in your magazine. And if you criticize my boat, I'm going to pull all my ads and you won't be able to publish your magazine. And because the magazines are also dependent on ads, it becomes a real challenge to to write critically. So there are ways to do it. The better magazines have ways to make sure readers are not being 
shown boats and things that are unsafe or, or anything of that matter, but it's handled a little bit differently because we are not Woodward and Bernstein. They are enthusiast magazines and we're, we're trying to promote the sport and the love of the sport. And so there's ways to say things and ways to do things. I, I've even had editors who just won't cover a boat. If they get on a boat and see so many things wrong that they don't mm-hmm. want to write the story, they just won't cover the boat. So that happens on occasion. And that's not so awful, you know, when you're talking about an enthusiast right. publication, you're, you're still not, you're not lying to the readers. You're not giving them false information or anything like that. You're not putting them in a dangerous spot, but there are, but there are ways to do it and it's handled differently than it would be in like Woodward and Bernstein land. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I knew there'd be an advertising component to it, but my first thought was, well, I bet that writer doesn't get access to the boat again at the next trade show or whatever. It also becomes an issue, right? Where if they, if the builders decide, well, you're a problem, they don't want to, they don't want to have you on their boats anywhere because you ask too many questions. That can become a thing. And again, that's not how it works in real journalism world. But how many boat builders are we really talking about? They're all the same builders at all the boat shows and there's only so many boats out there. So you have to kind of find a happy medium of, of how to do this stuff. And at the end of the day, a lot of the, a lot, you know, boats are so interesting because they're not like cars. There's different boats for all different kinds of purposes and way more so than there are with cars. And and the challenges boat builders, I think, rightfully have had sometimes with, with the, the magazines is somebody will write a story that says... I really prefer my center console to this express cruiser because I like center consoles better and here's why. Well, that's your opinion and that's fine, but the guy built an express cruiser and you're there to say, tell me about the express cruiser. Nobody cares that you prefer (laughs) center console. So (laughs) I think sometimes, and again, this is a function of people without journalism training, writing the stories. There's a, there's a difference between asking good questions about the topic you're covering and kind of just throwing your personal opinion in there and saying whatever you want. And I think a little more training, I always say, on the journalism end of things would go a long way. That's interesting. You mentioned different kinds of boats. One of the things, another article I read of yours, I guess, I don't know if it was in the same one or a different one, Talking, you were talking about how sort of the, the number of to- toys are important on a charter boat and it almost defines the experience. And one of the things that jumped off the page was there was a boat called Mastercraft, which isn't known in, in the, you wouldn't consider it in the yachting world, but it's obviously huge in the middle of America. And they found a home. They, it found a home in, in the charter world because of the types of activities and toys that people want when they're on these charters. Yeah. The, the charter yachts, he with the most toys wins. We actually ran that headline in one of the magazines at one point. And what they're doing now with the really, really big yachts, in addition to the huge garages full of tenders and toys, these guys are now building support vessels that follow them around the world, carrying everything from submarines to helicopters to some of them put cars on on those. Like they, whatever you want, whatever kind of toy you want, you can have. And there's no way in a week a person could even possibly use all these toys. It's incredible. But that particular boat that we wrote about, yeah, that guy had, I don't remember if it was the owner or his kids, but somebody was very into wakeboarding and, mm-hmm. and, and those kinds of sports. So they wanted a serious dedicated tender on that boat for wake sports. And of course you would go to a brand like that for, 
for that kind of a tender. But you're right. It's not usually what you see is more of a, um, they'll have like an intrepid center console that's kind of multi-purpose for fishing and toe sports and, and this, that, and the other. You know, the, these guys wanted like the ballast in the, in the keel to make the wake just the way they wanted the wake and the music that comes out the back with the right precision. <laughs> so you can hear it when you leap off the thing, you know, good for them, whatever. It's their money. Enjoy. Have a great time. That That's funny. I, dated a girl back in my twenties and she had worked on a, on a fed ship in the med. And she opened my eyes to what that world was like as a crew member. And it was, she was on call 24 seven and she had to plimp the pillows a certain way and everything just had to be perfect. And she could be woken up at four in the morning to help the chef. If somebody wanted Belgian waffles after they came back from nightclubbing in Europe, some, you know, in off of Italy or Spain. And- it's a really different existence on those boats. It's, um, I never treat the crew that way, just for the record. I, <laughs> I make my own bed even to try to show them they are not there to be my slaves or anything. But, but yeah, there's the stories that the crew on the big luxury yachts tell. Mm. Um, there's a reason Below Deck became a very famous <laughs> TV show. It's, it's, I've actually never seen that. <laughs> there, there's some behavior on those big boats that's, Questionable at best. And, right. you know, and, and the expectations, like you said about her putting the pillows, just so I've had, I've had stewardesses tell me they're required to go and lay in the bathtubs and sit in the toilets and look around to see if they see any dust from those angles and, and clean again. Like, like things oh that, God. things that you just in real life would know. And because of that, I've had them where I go to get on the boat to write a story and they're like, you're so normal. And I would say, well, well, thank you. I guess that's a compliment. Would, would, you know? And they would say, we thought you'd come with white gloves and be judging everything, all, you know, and they're so trained to be terrified of getting just the slightest thing wrong. It's almost a relief to them when regular people come on board to, to write an article. Yeah, I crewed a little bit, mostly as fill-in deckhand or mate for friends of mine. And I've been extremely lucky. Of course, it was never at that level. It was never, it was, you know, more what you would expect to see in coastal New England, you know, a 80 foot catch, a wooden catch or a, a 95 foot private motor yacht. And we got, I either, we got lucky or I got lucky on those particular trips. And it was never difficult, you know, that people were really, they almost treated us like we were the cool guys because we could make this thing move. You know, they were, they were very appreciative. So I feel after I hear stories, I feel lucky. <laughs> Well, and they're right. You are the cool guys. I think that's great. But that's a whole, you know, an 80 foot catch off the coast of Maine. A whole different kind of person is going to charter that boat than is going to charter a 250 footer off the coast of San Tropez in the CNBC capital of planet Earth. You know, it's you're getting a very different kind of human being who's chartering that boat. Yeah, the same girl that my friend, she told me on one of the trips, they had these really fun Australian guys and they wanted to party and they, they somehow latched on to one of the crew members who was British and they're like, take us to shore. We're going to go party. And the captain was really, really strict as he had to be. And the, I guess the British guy was kind of at the end of his rope with this whole program anyway. So when they got to shore, the Aussie said, come on, you're coming with us. We're, we're, we're going out. He goes, no, I got to bring the tender back. No, you're coming. Just tie it up. We're coming. So he said, yeah, whatever. And he did. And then when it came time to go back to the boat, they, they had sent another crew in, they brought the boat back. And then when they called to go back to the boat, they had his bags already packed. It's, it's a really, um, 
I I've see seen it nodding. happen. You knew where that was going. <laughs> I, well, I've seen it happen on fam trips, like on a one week fam trip. I've seen it where, you know, I always think of myself as the crew. I am there to do a job. Mm-hmm. I am there to get art, get stories, get pictures, get interviews done. I'm there to work. And yes, you get to have fun while you're working, but you're there to work. Mm. I've seen newcomers, whether they're writers or crew members or whatever, they get on the boat and they think they're the guests because they're being treated so nicely. And they're in this beautiful environment aboard this gorgeous vessel. And they start to get, I guess the right word is cocky. They start to just believe they are the owner or 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 a a guest who's there to be treated like royalty. And they start to do things like you described. And immediately, every time it's nipped in the bud, because everybody knows once you start going down that road, you're never, ever, ever going to come back. And you're useless for the job at that point. Wow. And P.S., you're not the owner. (laughs) You are there to do work. You should be doing... You know, if you think about it, if you were at a desk job somewhere and you just took off to go to the bar for a few hours, you'd get fired from that job too. You know, it's just a little harder on the boats because it's so up in your face. Mm. You know, you're, you're, when you, when you work for IBM in the office at IBM, you're not faced with, oh, I dropped them off at the Tiki bar on Virgin Gordon. So that, you know, it's not, you're not surrounded by it the way you are in the boat business. So it, it, you've got to really make a mental adjustment when you get on those super big boats that, you are the crew. You you are level with the crew. You are there to work. And I'm amazed just in my my time. Now I started my summer college job in beginning in 1988 was as an assistant harbor master in Newport, and that took me through college. And then I did it for a number of years beyond. And I used to joke with my partner at the time, if you saw an 85 foot Broward in Newport, it was like the biggest boat. It was at the yachting center. It was wow. Now. I couldn't find one. It was like a needle in a haystack, you know, because there's so the water lines have gotten so big, but at least here, there's still some appreciation for there's a classic beauty out on a mooring. You know, it doesn't, the big white shiny thing doesn't get all the attention. I got to tell you the big secret among almost every writer and editor I know in the, every Marine magazine in the world, we like the little boats that, you know, you you get on the, I have been on those big monster boats many, many times and they're gorgeous. They're impressive. They're amazing works of design and naval engineering and architecture. Mm -hmm. And I mean, incredible, incredible things go into the building of those boats. But just walking from your stateroom on the bottom deck up to the flybridge on the top deck, I feel like I got in my whole 10,000 steps for the day and I need a nap. <laughs> like they're so big, they can't get into the harbors to even right. anchor. And, and, you know, oh, well, we'll just put stabilizers and now you're out in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> stabilizers. Yeah. You know, like it, it can all be done and they can do incredible, incredible things and they are all amazing in their own ways. But if you ask almost any editor, they're like, yeah, give me that 35 foot center console and let's go have some fun. Let's, let's go do that. I think that was one of my questions. It's like at one point I'd been on enough sort of midsize yachts. It's like nothing surprised me anymore. Okay, cool. The TV disappears down behind the settee. I get it. You know, is there, <laughs> is there anything that surprises you anymore or are you just like numb to it? What has surprised me lately? I'll tell you, I am, I don't know if surprise is the right word. I am impressed with what some of the engineers are coming up with nowadays. Like you now have guys figuring out how to make the whole top of a boat out of glass in a way that won't break 
and that right. that somehow collects all the photovoltaic energy we need for the solar panels that are built into the glass, but doesn't ruin the aesthetics from inside the yacht and you just get 360 degree views of the world. You know, you go standard or something like that. Think about the brain power that was required to even create that. It's way above my pay grade. And I'm impressed by that kind of stuff now. I'm impressed by things like technology that's not just there for technology's sake. If they can actually figure out how to make it easier for people to dock a boat so they're not afraid to dock a boat, I think that's fantastic because it'll get more people boating Mm. and it'll make people feel more comfortable when they're on the boat. That's the kind of stuff where, surprised you're right. Do do I ever go, wow, I never imagined. (laughs) You know, of course you never imagined. You don't have $800 million to spend on your (laughs) boat. But when they come up with something that's actually really functional and cool, mm. that to me, that's the that's the most impressive stuff to I me. Did, I just you mentioned self docking. I just read something recently. I don't know. Somebody made a prediction or that boats will be self. You won't need to know how to dock a boat in so many years. It'll just get close and then hit a button and the boat will do the rest. But I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm old school. I still kind of like the idea of using a spring line and you know. It's funny. There's a big debate going on. We write about it in the trade magazines where they are working on that tech and you can order it today and Mm -hmm. have it and it works. And the question a lot of skippers have is, do we want autonomous docking or assisted docking? Meaning, do we want the boat to take over and be in control or do we just want whatever kind of a boost we can get from the technology to make us a little better at the docking. Most people of your vintage and my vintage, we want assisted. We do not want to hand over control of that boat Mm. to a computer because we've seen too many things go wrong in life and and we just don't trust them. You talk to the younger, like the people in their 20s, they're like, oh yeah, if I could push a button, it docks itself, that'd be great. They'll love it. So my guess is maybe 20 years from now when those people are 40, It'll be widely accepted. That would be yeah. my prediction. We can pull this tape out in 20 years, in the year 2043, and see <laughs> if I was right. Uh, well, I had a, a funny experience with one of my friends. He was in town, and he was in, running this 95-footer at the time. And we were at the dock. We were grilling some food and up in the top deck. And I noticed on the wing station, the, the thing had been disassembled, and there were wires taped up. And so the wing didn't look – the controls at the wing station didn't look complete. And I said, what's, what's that? And he said, get yourself a fresh beer. This is a good one. And what, <laughs> it, what had happened was he was coming into dock and his mate, got, they got close. His mate set the spring and he was going back to get a stern line. And all of a sudden, my, my friend who's the captain, he's at the wing station. He completely lost control. The thing went into forward. Uh, one engine went into forward, like full on, almost full on. Scary. And the spring line snapped. So he, he quickly runs inside to try and use the inside controls. He's not getting any response. So the only thing he could do is he reached up and pulled the, the, he killed the engines essentially. And the mate got hit really hard in the back of the leg with, uh, with the cleat that got pulled out. Oh my gosh. They wrestled it to the die. I mean, once the thing was shut down, he, well, he powered, I think he powered it up again and, it, it's, it wanted to go. So I think he realized the starboard engine wasn't going to run away on him like that. So it would just the starboard engine and one line on the dock, he, they just sort of tucked it back in. I don't know what went wrong, but there was an electrical, there was some bad communication between the wing station and, and 
the system. He was old school. He's like, I didn't like this. <laughs> right. I don't like the control being taken out of my hand. Yeah. Right. And, he's and, already. And somebody probably. got hurt. Luckily wasn't hurt too bad, but one of the guys got, you know, he got a rap in the leg. From That's a, horrible. Yeah. That's horrible. And, and the other thing that I've heard numerous times is, well, what if the power fails and you've got everything connected electrically and the electric goes down and you don't, you don't actually know how to bring the boat in because you've only ever pushed a button because that day is we're, we're getting there. We might be there now or we're getting close to it. You know, it's same right. with, you know, paper charts versus um, chart plotters, electronic chart plotters. If you talk to older skippers, they will always have paper charts. Yeah. And just in case that thing zaps out and doesn't work. Well, think about that in terms of you're out in the water and suddenly everything goes down and you don't know how to get the boat in. That's a whole other level of crisis right. right there. So there's a lot of talk among boat builders, among safety people, among marina owners are talking about all this stuff now. Uh, it's 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 a big conversation. I mean, the technology is coming. The AI is here and they're, they're going to figure out how to apply it. So mm. we're all going to learn together how this is going to work out. <laughs> Great. What we I just, can say is it'll make for a lot of really interesting stories and I hope people will buy the magazines and read them. We just got a new television, a smart TV and Two days in a row, one day I was up here practicing guitar and all of a sudden I hear voices. I said, Sarah, come home already? The TV turned itself on at 5.08 PM. And then it did the same last night. I go, we got to get to the bottom of this. It took two 54-year-olds going online, looking, <laughs> trying to- <laughs> Which remote do I use? <laughs> well, more importantly, why did the TV come on? on its I own? have sometimes where my TV will talk to like the Alexa speaker and you're like, what are you talking? Like what is happening? They're just talking to each other. Just uh, before I, I let you go, I want to thank you for your time. But you also write a lot about dogs and th that's I near do. and dear to my heart. We just lost our dog of 14 and a half years and uh, he was 17. I mean, we had him for 14 and a half of them. So we, we feel blessed, but. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I noticed that it, it also made me think of Wendy because when I spoke with her, they adopted or took on an island dog basically. And she, I remember she told me the story. It was like her daughter was kind of eyeing it. And the, the daughter at the age of that innocence of, Oh, well, I'll, I'll become friendly with this dog. And Wendy was trying to like not see it. So she, <laughs> she didn't fall for it, but in the end she fell for it and they, it's their dog now, but you write, you write about dog. Well, you've written books about dogs. I do. I, it's kind of a personal passion kind of a thing. I, I, it started, Gosh, 13 years ago now, I adopted a dog. I went on petfinder.com, typed in my zip code, went to the local rescue and adopted a dog. And it turned out he had come all the way from North Carolina. And this was back in the day before that was kind of a common thing. And I said, well, what the heck did I just do? Long story short, he had come from a, a shelter, a taxpayer funded shelter that had like very, very high kill rate. They were using a gas chamber. It was pretty horrifying. And I, I I ended up writing a book about him and how he had gotten to me. And it was one of the first books to document what was going on, which today is very common with these cross-country transports. All this stuff was very new back then. And we ended up, that dog's name was Blue. We ended up going on CNN, a producer at CNN liked that book. We ended up shutting that gas chamber down. So no dog ever had to die that way again. And they worked on improving wow. the adoption rates at that. And I was so proud. <laughs> it's the, yeah. It, and not, not, I, I can tell you, I just yesterday, I, um, 
that blue, unfortunately, like, like you just went through it. I just went through it. He died of cancer last about six months ago. And I may cry a little if I talk about him, but, wow. um, that book stuck with people to the point that I got an email just this week. That book came out 10 years ago, something like that. I got an email just this week from somebody who read it when she was 10 years old. And now that she's in college, she's starting a dog rescue and her friend wanted to get an autographed copy because it was what inspired her 10 years later oh, to start wow. a rescue and save dogs. Like I get these emails all the time. That that book has saved, I don't even know how many dogs lives. And so you do something like that, right? And you just want to keep doing something like that. Right. And so I started writing about the dog business and all different kinds of things about the dog business. And they've done... They've made laws based on books I've written. There was a huge federal investigation based on things I've written. They've, I wrote a huge front page investigation for the Washington Post about how this new subculture called puppy mill rescue, where we got the proof that they were actually in business with some of those breeders behind the scenes and there was all this stuff going on. You know, I find it really interesting as a dog lover, where are our dogs coming from and how mm. can we make all their lives better? I kind of do it on the side, like I would call that the real journal. That's the Woodward and Bernstein right. journalism stuff that I do. And and I, I'm i just a big dog lover like you are. And so I think yeah. anything I can do to use my skills to make the world a little better place for them, I'm, I'm going to do it. That's amazing. You just hit like three chords. We lost Ernie on, that was New Year's Day in the morning, basically. But he had some issues and he had to go to the hospital. So I, we dropped him off at the animal hospital back in November. And where he was to stay for five days. And then I literally drove my wife to Logan airport so she could go to England. So I came home. This is the quietest house, you know, and I, it was hard, but he, he made it out of hospital. She came back from England. We stammered on for as long as we could, but it struck a chord with me because Ernie came from North Carolina. He was given up there by somebody. Uh, his name was CB, I think, or CJ, CJ, CJ. He went to the shelter there. It was a kill shelter of some description. And then the Potter League in New, here in Middletown, Rhode Island, somehow he came up. I don't know if it was a, a, a flight, but it was at least in a, in a trailer. And he got adopted out here. They returned him after three months. Uh, how could you return? He was the most well-behaved, loving soul. So we took him and immediately we already had an old, he was a beagle foxhound mix. We already had an older beagle named Walter. And the two took to each other like, like house on fire. I mean, it was great, but Ernie stayed with us. We'd had other dogs that also every dog we've had, we rescued and through other health problems, some lasted longer than others, but uh, Ernie, we always said, Oh, Ernie's going to be with us forever. And that was of course setting ourselves up for failure, but it's really hard when they die. Um, I'm so sorry that you just yeah. went through it. I, I still have the pain fresh as well. And uh and it's also interesting to me, there's so many people like you and me who, like you talk about, you brought him immediately to the hospital to get him whatever he needed. I did the same thing with Blue. I, I had pet insurance. And so Blue had the very best oncology, veterinary oncology team that money could buy. Mm. And I wrote about that for the Washington Post. You should have seen the hate mail and the awful comments on that story. How dare you spend money like this trying to save a dog when so many people suffer and don't have what they need. And I just mm. thought, like, I feel about Blue, I felt about Blue the way you felt about Ernie. Why wouldn't right. I take him to the hospital when he had a problem? And he had insurance that paid for most of it. What, you know, what's the issue? But there's I, a lot I, of people I, who think we're crazy. So I wish we did. I, I, yeah, that was, I spent thousands, but I got him home and 
it was only after I got him back, I was looking for something on their website to send him a card or something. And I stumbled across, they let me visit him three times while he was in the hospital. And I read on their website, one of their policies was, while your pet is in, in, in care with us, we don't allow visitation. And they just said, hey, why don't you come up around three o'clock? If you can get out of work, come up. And, and, and they let me touch him and let him know that I was still engaged in his life. And I thought, wow, that, so then we really did write a nice card to them after, you know. After I think that's home. great. So. I am the woman who brings her laptop computer and sits in the waiting room and stares at them so that blue goes first and blue gets out first. And then we get to leave <laughs> because they don't <laughs> like me. Being, it's a benefit of being a freelance writer. You can pretty much work anywhere. So I, I place myself in their line of sight so that oh, my dogs right. tend to get in and out pretty fast. So you still write pieces on dogs for Washington Post or was that those specific exposés? No, I've done, I, I've yeah. written a number for them. Um, I've written a number of books about dogs. Um, right now I'm trying, I've never tried this before. We're, we're trying to sell a TV show about the dog world. Um, I'm working with the former head of the ASPCA on that, which is kind of exciting. And oh, wow. we'll see where that goes. If that becomes a thing, I don't know, but what's real fun is when the boats and the dogs kind of crisscross because there's obviously a lot of great boat dogs out in right. the world. That's fun to write about and meet those dogs. And I just, I think it all kind of goes hand in hand. It's all boat people are tend to be very nature oriented people. We care yeah. about the environment around us and what's going on. I know. I kind of think of the dogs as an extension of that. They're, yeah. they're kind of around and in, in, in the day, you know? Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, thanks again for taking the time to do this. It's been fun. I appreciate talking to you. It was yeah. a really fun time. You have been listening to Standing Before the Mask podcast with Chris Heaton. Please be sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You may also connect directly at chrisheaton.substack.com. 